So, uh, as we get started, Amanda did read from Matthew, but you can go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 2, because that's where we will spend the bulk of our time. But as you're turning there, uh, this is my second time preaching to you from up here. And so, if you were here the first time, you'll know that Jordan didn't do me any favors uh, with the topic last time. And so, afterwards, I had a talk with him, and he says he felt bad, but I'm not sure that I really believed him. So, uh, I did some research, got on the internet, and I found out that pastoral hazing, it's a thing. (laughs) It affects tens of people every year. So, I've contacted my union rep, and we've contacted HR, and so we're we're filing a grievance, and so I'll keep you all updated on how that goes. So, (laughs) So, uh, we are continuing on in our series in Malachi, and so last week we saw the implications of unfaithful worship committed by God's people, and we saw that there was a high cost to our worship, and we saw last week that the root of the people's sin was that they lacked honor towards God. And so this week, we'll see that God directs his ire towards the priesthood. These are the people who were entrusted with the teachings and the wisdom of God. They had a responsibility to lead the people in right worship. And so right off the bat, let me just tell you that this is a hard word to preach personally, because as I preach, I'm putting a spotlight right on myself. I'm putting a spotlight on Jordan, on Rob, on Micah, on Jacob, and we'll see the implications are absolutely terrifying. And so as I preach today, I would really covet your prayers. So let's turn to Malachi chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. And so this is what God's word says. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth that you teach us. We thank you for the hard words and the warnings that you give us because we know that they are for our good. I pray that we would take your word to heart, that we would give you the honor that you're due. Lord, help us to stand in awe of your name as we study your word and help me to teach your word rightly so that as we leave here, we would magnify your great name beyond this place. We thank you for your grace today. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. All right, so as we continue on in Malachi, it's good to be reminded of the context. And so this is post-exile, right? The people are home from captivity. The temple operation, temple worship has resumed, but even though that's the case, there's not been a physical manifestation of God's presence in the temple like there had been in previous times. And even with that, the kingdom of Israel had not been restored. And so there's a disconnect between the hope of restoration of the kingdom and the reality that the people are politically dependent and they're economically depressed. And so all of this has led to disillusionment with God. It's like you can almost hear the people asking, if God doesn't care, why should we? And we, we asked that question last week. So with that as a back, backdrop, we saw last week why God called out Israel. God condemned their worship because they broke the Mosaic law by offering blemished and unclean sacrifices. We saw in Leviticus 22, God's commandments as they relate to the requirements of sacrifices as offerings for their sin. And we saw that God required the best, the perfect animal. And really, God was after their heart. So that was a big deal. But here in chapter two, God takes aim at the priest who are allowing this unfaithful worship. The priests had diluted the strenuous demands that God had set forth for proper worship. And because the priests weren't being faithful to God's law, there were disastrous consequences at hand. If you remember the movie, Remember the Titans, there at the beginning before their season had started, you had a conflict between two of the main characters, Julius. He was out kind of doing his own thing on the field, and the captain of the team, Gary, calls him out and says, hey, you can't do that. But do you remember Julius's line to him? He says, attitude reflects leadership. I think that's what we see here. The people were failing because the priests were failing in their role. So look with me again at, at verses 4 through 6. Malachi says, Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in my name. So God calls the priest to remember this covenant with Levi. And so who is Levi? Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was one of the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so all of his descendants were the priest of the nation. And so if you were of the tribe of Levi, you were a priest. If you were a priest, that meant you were from the tribe of Levi. And so we don't really know this covenant as well as some of the others, like we know with Abraham, how God said that he would be a father to a great nation. We know the covenant with David, that his descendant would sit on the throne for forever. But here, God makes a covenant with Levi. And God made a covenant with the priests concerning the role once they entered the promised land. And as the Israelites were entering that promised land, the Levites were given a different inheritance from the other tribe. So the other tribes, if you remember, they were given plots of territory to settle but the Levites, the priests, were given the privilege of serving the Lord and the responsibility of leading the nation in worship. And so a lot of times in our Bibles, if you look in the back, there's a whole bunch of maps, and usually there'll be one that has a map of Israel, and it has all the territory laid out by tribes. And you'll notice that Levi wasn't given any territory. 
Why? It's because they were given this great responsibility. So let's look at this covenant. So uh, this will be on the screen. Look at Joshua 18, verse 7. It says, For the Levites have no portion among you, meaning that they're not given any land, because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And so look at, with me at Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 5. This will be up there as well. It says, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord their Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless him and bless in the name of the Lord. And we saw that in Malachi. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. So God's giving them this purpose. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, as the, the tribes are getting ready to enter into the promised land, Moses blesses each tribe. And of the Levites, he blesses them for observing God's word and keeping his covenant. And he charges the priests, he charges the Levites to teach and instruct Israel. So God gave the Levites, God gave the priest this extraordinary office. So instead of getting stuff, instead of getting land, they get the privilege of exclusive devotion to him. So let me pause right here. Let me give a little mini application. This is free with the cost of admission. But how many of us, when we heard that, think, man, I'd rather get stuff. I'd rather have land, right? How many of us, that would be our natural heart's desire instead of serving the Lord? So would we rather have stuff or would we rather have the Lord? So God's choosing of the Levites for his specific purpose, his granting of life and peace as part of this covenant this was to prompt awe and reverence on the part of the Levites. The priests would stand in fear and awe of the Lord alone and not of man. Their only concern would be the Lord and his divine work. They would find their life and peace in their reverence of the Lord. And so this devotion and this reverence would be manifested in two primary ways. And so look with me at verses 6 through 9. And we'll see that these two primary purposes are true instruction and holy living. So starting in verse 6, it says, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek the Lord from his mouth, or should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So first off, we see that they are to teach rightly. They are to engage in true instruction for the people. And so what did that involve? That involved factual correctness. That is teaching the word as God intended it, that there was reliability in it, that the people could base their lives off of the teaching. There was moral uprightness in this teaching. It reflected the character and the nature of God. Malachi also calls them to preserve knowledge, right? That's to guard knowledge jealously. It's to pay stubborn attention to what the word says. And I'm sure we're all familiar with those people who are just real sticklers for the details, right? In my household, that is my daughter. 
She is a stickler for the details. If something happens to my wife, she will take care of me because she pays attention to the details. If I don't eat my vegetables, guess who's catching that one? She's catching that one, right? She's not going to let it slip. And so that's what the priests were to do. They were to pay stubborn attention to what the Word says. And why does that matter? It's because they were entrusted with the Word of the Lord. They were messengers of the Lord of hosts. So they were to teach rightly. Secondly, they were called to holy living. They were called to walk upright, meaning that they were to walk in integrity and obedience, that they were, have, they were to have a right pattern of life. But God says that they've turned aside from the way, and he even gives an example, that they have shown partiality, he says in verse 9. And that means that they weren't applying the truth correctly. They weren't applying it rightly based on who they were interacting with. They had different standards of obedience for different people. And so some scholars would say that applies here to the people offering unclean sacrifices, that the priests would allow some people to offer an unclean sacrifice, but for others, they would uh, make them fulfill the letter of the law and, and, and offer a perfect, unblemished sacrifice. So they were showing partiality as they were teaching. And so when God says that they turned away, what does that infer? It means that the priests had lost their reverence for God. They were basing their instruction on man and on what man wanted, and not on what the Lord wanted. Why did the priest allow the people to present unacceptable sacrifices? It's because that they didn't fear the Lord. Their lack of all resulted in disobedience. So rather stubbornly holding to God's command, they catered to man instead of the Lord. And so because of this, because of this lack of all, this failure in their teaching, this failure in their living, we see God's warning. And so look back at verses 1 through 3. He says, And now this commandment is for you, O priest, if you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. And so God warns the priest to honor him rightly. He tells them to take it to heart. And so this is more than just listening to God, giving just cursory attention to it. God's saying this is serious. This is like when I tell my kids, look at me. Look at me when I'm talking to you right? God wants their attention. And so this conveys taking information that they've previously been given and putting it into action, doing something about it. And so obedience is faith in action. And we see this throughout scripture. Probably the most famous place we see this is in James when he says that I will show you my faith by what I do. And so orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So right beliefs lead to a right pattern of life, a right practice. And so the priests, they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. God had given them the law, 
There's no mystery about their role, their purpose. But the priests did not give complete obedience. They cut corners. And because of that, God warns them. And in fact, he declares that he's already been cursing them. And this was evident in the current circumstances of the nation. They were home, but they were not independent. They were free, but they were still oppressed. And for the unfaithful priests themselves, God says, I'm going to carry that curse to even your children. But look again at what God says in verse 3, that he will spread refuse on their faces. If you're reading out of the ESV, out of the Pew Bibles, it says dung, right? So that's a really nice way of God saying he's going to smear manure on their faces. You just think a giant cow patty. Anybody ever stepped in one? You don't want that smeared on your face, right? But this is more than just some gross threat that God made up on the spot. The priests knew exactly what God was referring to when they read this. Under the law in Leviticus chapter 4, the internal organs and other leftovers from a sacrifice were to be carried outside the camp and burned. And so God is saying he will reverse those purity rituals in order to punish, humiliate, and dishonor the unfaithful priest. Look at what the expository commentary says. It says, Just as dung is brought outside the camp to be deposited far from God's holy presence, so the unresponsive priest of Malachi's day will be treated like the refuse of their offerings. So God will sweep away the priests because what they knew of God didn't carry over to their life. Their beliefs did not translate into behavior. Their faith did not lead to obedience. They had lost their awe of him. And the consequences didn't just affect the priests themselves. They affected others. And specifically, they affected the salvation and spiritual health of the people. Verse 8 says that they caused many to stumble by their instruction. And so this is similar to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9 when he says that it's better to have a millstone tied around our neck and thrown into the sea than to cause someone to stumble. And this is similar to what Amanda read just a minute ago from Matthew 23, that Jesus says, Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to those religious leaders, because they were leading people away from the kingdom, right? So look at how Robbie Gallaty sums up the priest. He says, The irony of this passage is that God appointed the priest for the purpose of purifying the people and protecting the temple, but they were the source of the pollution. The ones who were called to live a life of purity before the Lord were the ones who were actually destroying the nation. Perversion originated with and was propagated through them. Matthew Henry simply says, Nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. So why does this matter? We don't have priests under the new covenant. Like Jordan said last week, we're not bringing our bulls and our goats up here to offer as a sacrifice, and I'm very thankful for that. I would not survive that. I would either vomit or pass out if we had to do animal sacrifices, right? I'm so glad that we don't have to do that. But just as Malachi called for faithful spiritual leadership, the New Testament also repeatedly calls for faithful spiritual leadership in our churches today. 
Specifically, the Bible calls for holy living and right teaching from our pastors, our elders, our overseers. And so we use those words interchangeably here. That's the same word in the Greek, and that refers back to uh, the, the, the Greek word for shepherd. And so I'm going to use those interchangeably. And typically here at The Journey, we refer to pastors as Jordan and myself, paid members of the staff. But we have elders. That would be Rob and Micah and Jordan. But I want you to know that we are the same, right? They're not JV. We're not varsity. We're all the same. Elders, pastors, there's the same thing. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and stick a thumb there and also turn to Titus chapter 1. And so these references will be up on the screen. So we're going to look first at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in these two passages, Paul is going to outline qualifications for elders and for pastors. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to do the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not, addic- uh, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Okay, and look just a couple pages over to Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Paul, writing to Titus, says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So in these passages, Paul outlines the qualifications of elders. And like Malachi... We see the same emphases on, on his character, his holy living, and his right teaching. And so we want to unpack these just a little bit. And so first, we see in both lists this qualification of above reproach. And so this is an external personal reputation that would be a credit to the church. And so a pastor is one that would be generally blameless, and they would be absent of some glaring moral deficiency. And so above reproach, that's a general comment on good character, and the rest of everything we see in these lists go on to explain what all that entails. And so part of being above reproach, one of the first things we see is that a pastor is to be a husband of one wife, right? This is a big one. This is one that brings down the ministry of many pastors, and this is all about marital faithfulness. In the original language, the text literally says that pastors must be 
a man of one woman. And so, of one woman. I'm sorry, let me get that right. <laughs> Must be a man of one woman. And so, the emphasis here is on faithful devotion to his wife in a monogamous relationship. The marriage relationship must have a clear and consistent pattern of honor, devotion, and love. And so look at what the expository commentary says here. It says, The husband, therefore, must exhibit exemplary faithfulness and devotion to his wife. If a man is not faithful to love and to lead his own wife like Christ does the church, then he cannot love and lead Christ's bride. Marriage is a proving ground of church leadership. Marriage is a proving ground of church leadership. And so one misstep in this area, and we know that reproach abounds, right? The moment that we learn of this, that reputation is sunk. And unfortunately, this is all too common among pastors. I'm sure we're all familiar with some of the, the public uh, high-profile instances of this, but I'm sure we also know of those personal examples where we see pastors failing in their marriages. And so Jordan and I, we've even joked that we hope John Piper dies soon, not because we want him to die, but because we want somebody of that stature to make it to the finish line. We want somebody to finish the race well before they have a chance to fall. So that's a hard one for pastors. We see these other characteristics, that they're to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, good reputation with outsiders. And so all of that means that they exercise good judgment, that they're not controlled by their lust or their passions. They're thoughtful. They don't make rash decisions. They're not prideful. We see that they are to be hospitable. They open their home to care for the needs of others. They're not closed off to people. We also see that they're not to be pugnacious or quarrelsome. Pugnacious, that's a fun word. That gives the picture of putting up your dukes, right? I don't know if anybody does that anymore. But pastors are to be people who are not looking to brawl. They're not looking for a fight. They're not bullies. They're not abusive, right? Both from a physical standpoint, but also from a lifestyle that they're not trying to bowl someone over. They're not seeking confrontation. Instead, they're gracious, they're peaceful, they're gentle. They're also to be free from the love of money, and this is another big one. They shouldn't be greedy. They need to be faithful stewards of money and finances. They don't seek dishonest gain. Pastors, they manage their household well. They must have an exemplary home. Right? That doesn't mean that it's perfect. If you look at my house, it's not perfect. My family, we're not perfect but we try to lead well at home. That means that we faithfully disciple in our home, that discipline is evident. And again, not that my children are perfect, but that we try to discipline them. We also see that they are not to be a new convert. And why? Why can't they be a new convert? And that's because we must have time for his character and his pattern of life to be established. There has to be a maturity of faith. There has to be an endurance of faith. There has to be time for his life to demonstrate his worthiness for the office of pastor. And so all of those things, they deal with the holy living, right? The man's character, the pastor's character. But we also see that he must have the ability to teach. There has to be a degree of skill in teaching Christian doctrine. 
So in writing to Titus, Paul provides two practical purposes. He says, number one, they got to exhort in sound doctrine. It means that they have to teach what's right. Number two, they have to refute those who contradict. So that means they have to be able to identify and correct false teaching. So you have faithful instruction in right doctrine and faithful confrontation of false doctrine. But you'll notice that Paul doesn't say anything about teaching style, right? It's not about his style. Pastors can accomplish both of those purposes with different styles. And so if you've been here for a little while, you'll probably notice that Jordan and I have very different styles of preaching. So Jordan is kind of short. He's to the point, right? He's kind of dry. <laughs> and I'm the opposite, right? But does that style matter? No. What matters is the substance. Is it faithful to God's Word? Now, does that mean that we'll like everything that a pastor says? No, probably not. But when we get to those moments, what we want to do is we want to hold up what they say to the Word. Is it rooted in Scripture? And if it is, we want to sit under the Lord's instruction because that means that the Lord needs to work with us on that particular aspect. And so again, the most important thing is, are we being rooted in the Word? And so how do we ensure faithfulness to the Word? One of the best guardrails to our faithful teaching, to our faithful preaching, is what we call expositional preaching. And that's something we talk about a lot here. And so David Helm defines it this way. Expositional preaching is empowered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and the emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of a biblical text. And so Charles Simeon, who is a 19th century British preacher, he describes it this way. He says, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head. We saw that in, in Malachi in preserving that knowledge and guarding it jealously. Charles Simeon says, I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I'm expounding. So as we teach and as we preach faithfully as pastors and as elders, we want to be faithful to what God reveals to us in His Word. We don't want to preach in such a way that I give you my opinion or my take or my spin, and then I use the Bible to justify that opinion. And so as we preach expositionally, as we're preaching through a passage like we're doing here in Malachi, we are submitting to God's authority that he reveals in his word. Because our authority as pastors and elders is contingent upon the authoritative word of God. And so if our primary preaching style is one of constantly looking for scripture to support my topic, I'm so much more prone to error because I could miss relevant passages. I could miss the context. But if we move through books or passages, I have to deal with the passage as it's written there. I have to reckon with the context. And it becomes much more difficult to put my own spin on a text that way. And so if you think back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 2, which we just read a few minutes ago, right, where God says to honor my name or I will curse you. Can you see how somebody might take that from a health and wealth perspective and use that to twist the word, to say, honor my name or I will curse you. And so honor it by giving money to my church or to my ministry or else God will curse this. 
Is that what Malachi is talking about in that particular passage? No. But if we preach from that angle, right, it's easy to fall into that trap. And so hear me, that doesn't mean that all topical preaching is bad. We can be faithful in teaching God's Word about a particular topic, and our last series was a good example of that, where we talked about God's good design for our gender and sexuality. But each time we talked about that, we tried to anchor that to a faithful interpretation of God's Word. And so expositional preaching provides a better, not perfect, but a better guardrail against unfaithful teaching. And so I know I shared this analogy with you previously, but I like the analogy of a diet, right? We want our steady diet to be expositional preaching, and we want to view topical teaching and preaching as a snack. And so if our entire diet consisted of snacks, we wouldn't be very healthy, and so if we're, we are going to teach sound doctrine and refute false doctrine adequately, we need to crave a diet of expositional preaching and teaching. Okay, so we've seen a call to holy living. We've seen a call to right teaching, right? And just as Malachi advises the priest to take the Lord's warning to heart, we see the same warning for pastors and elders in the New Testament as well. And so James 3.1, this will be on the screen. Look at what James says. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And again, in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells Timothy to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. So pay attention to your life, pay attention to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear it. So like the Old Testament priests, pastors will be held accountable for their ministry. There's a high, high cost to faithfully leading into teaching. There's accountability that each one of us has for our own soul, right? Each of us has to respond to the Lord's leading. But Paul teaches that there's accountability for pastors for the souls of others. So look what Jeremy Rennie says. He says, Paul was saying that the pastor plays some God-ordained part in the salvation of others by paying attention to his life and teaching. God's Spirit somehow uses the well-tended life of an overseer in the outworking of salvation for others in the church. So we don't know exactly how that breaks down, but somehow, somehow, God uses the ministry of pastors in the salvation for others. And so what I say and what I do, that matters. What I teach, that matters, and it matters to you. So as we come to a close today, we want to see that God gives pastors a responsibility to lead faithfully and to teach His Word rightly. It can be really dangerous when that doesn't happen. And it can lead to devastation in their own lives. But more importantly, it can be catastrophic when it comes to the salvation of others. So we have a few applications for today. And so the first one, pray for us. Pray for Jordan, for Rob, for Micah, for Jacob, and for me. Looking after your souls is really hard work. It's a heavy burden, and it can be overwhelming at times. 
And one day we will give account for that. And that's something that we don't want to take lightly. So as you pray for us, let me give you a few specifics, okay? So pray that we would be clean and that we would be clear. So pray that we would be clean in our morality, that we would continue to pursue holy living and personal sanctification. And pray that we would be clear in our doctrine, that we would faithfully communicate God's truth to you. And so I want to focus on these just a little bit. So pray that we are clean in our character and our holy living, because there are too many examples of pastors falling and failing. And usually those come down to marriage, to money, or abuse of power. And so it is really easy to fall. And I want to say that I'm no different than you. None of us elders are any different from you. We don't have some super Christian power that was granted to us when we became pastors and elders. And in fact, just a year ago, I was sitting right where you were, right? And so we are no different than any of you, and we can fall just the same as anybody else. And so I don't want to be a pastor that fails. And so pray that we would be faithful to our wives. Pray that we would be protected from sexual immorality and from pornography. Pray that we would be protected from greed. Pray that we would be protected from pride. And pray that we would stand firm against the temptations. Okay. So pray that we are clean, but also pray that we are clear in our doctrine and in our teaching. Because preaching and teaching is hard work because it has bearing on your soul. So pray that we would do the hard work of studying. Pray that we would be continually refreshed by God's word. Pray that we would not shy away from the hard parts of God's word. Pray that we wouldn't get bored with God's word, but that we would continually find our joy in it. Pray that we would be faithful to the word. Pray that we would teach it well and that by God's grace that sinners would be brought to salvation through our preaching and our teaching. And so why do I put such an emphasis on asking you all to pray for us? Look at what J.C. Ryle says. This will be on the screen. It says, People fall in private long before they fall in public. People fall in private long before they fall in public. And so through Malachi, the Lord said that he would spread manure on the faces of the unfaithful priest. And so as bad as that would be, I would much rather have that done to me and have to stand up here and tell you, confess to you that I've had some sort of moral failing that would disqualify me from ministry. So pray for us. We desperately covet your prayers. And so there's another way that we want you to pray for us as well. Pray that we would revere God instead of man. Pray that we would fear the Lord instead of you. And so there are a couple practical temptations to being a pastor. One of them that we see right now is this celebrity pastor phenomenon. You see pastors cultivating a platform or a following, right? Trying to get a praise, get the praise of men instead of the Lord. That's one temptation. But another one that just eats up churches is what you might see called church consumerism, right? That's giving you what you want to hear. That's avoiding the hard parts of the word 
not calling out sin or error because of fear. Fear that people will leave, that they won't come to church anymore. Fear that you won't tithe anymore because you don't like something that we say. Or fear that we'll lose our jobs because you don't like what we say. And so this is a very real, real temptation to meet expectations that may not be rooted in the Bible, to be questioned all the time, to be threatened with job status, to be told that my tithe pays your salary. Pastors are tempted all the time to submit to man. So look what Hebrews 13, 17 says. This will be on the screen. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so this is a really hard thing for me to say. It's really hard for me to stand here to tell you to listen to us, to tell you to submit to us, and so I hope that my posture is right, to tell you to not make our job watching over your souls any harder than it is. Because we don't want to lord this over you. We don't want to take advantage of our position. We don't want to be a bully because we know that we are prone to error too. But I'm sure that we're all aware of churches that chew up and spit out pastors once they get tired of them. And so we want to guard against that here at The Journey. So pray for us. Pray for the church that we as a body collectively, that we don't get to this point where we have to choose between God or man. But even as I say that, I want to take the opportunity to commend you. Because this is not an indictment on The Journey. You all love us really well. You all love us really well. And there is great joy in serving you all. And so we love the way that you serve us, and we love the way that you all serve each other. And so we are so excited about what God is doing here and where he's leading us. So let me tell you thank you for how you love us, how you watch over us, how you hold us up. And so keep at it, because it, it means a lot to us. Okay. So, application one, pray for us. Application two, pray for our families. Pray for our wives and our children because there is a level of scrutiny on them that can be just as burdensome. And that can be hard for others to understand. And quite frankly, it's hard for my kids to even understand at this point. Sometimes there's a level of loneliness that exists there too. So pray that our wives and our families, that they would have real friendships, right? That they would have deep fellowship with you all. Pray that they would have rest because it's taxing on the family. Pray that they would have peace because they share in our burden. They are burdened when we're burdened. So pray for our families, for our wives and for our children. Application number three, it's for all of us. So how do we ensure continued faithful leadership here at the church? It starts and ends with full-hearted commitment for each of us to God's word and to holy living. This is a call to the spiritual disciplines for each of us. Look at what J.C. Ryle says. He says, In the first place, if we would be kept from falling into false doctrine, 
Let us arm our minds with a thorough knowledge of God's Word. Let us read our Bibles from beginning to end with daily diligence and constant prayer for the teaching of the Holy Spirit, and so strive to become thoroughly familiar with their contents. Ignorance of the Bible is the root of all error, and a superficial acquaintance with it accounts for many of the sad perversions and defections of the present day. And so J.C. Ryle, he wrote this in the early 1900s. But this sounds like what Malachi was warning the people, what he was warning the priesthood, right? Sounds like what Paul is teaching in the New Testament. It's what J.C. was addressing in the 1900s, and it's what ails us today. If we are to call out heirs in teaching and heirs in life, then we ourselves must know what to look for. And so we must be devoted to the word ourselves, personally and individually. We must be devoted to our own spiritual disciplines. If we want the church and our pastors and our elders to avoid falling into error, we must have single-minded devotion to the word. And so doing the hard work of knowing the word, of knowing scripture, that's not just the work of the pastor. That's for each of us. And so let's encourage one another and spur each other to grow in the knowledge of God and in personal holiness. And should something happen to Jordan or to me or the other elders, you all hold fast to the word. Demand men of high character to lead. Demand expositional preaching so that the church does not fall into error. So lastly, application number four. We focused on what God requires of spiritual leaders, and that's good. But with expositional preaching, we always want to look at how each text points us to Jesus. So how does Malachi's indictment of the priesthood, how does that lead us to Christ? Look at what Kevin DeYoung says. This will be on the screen. It says, The particulars of their sin with obscure Levitical laws and animal guts seem strange to us. But the root problem is all too familiar. They tried cutting corners with God. Going through the religious motions does not honor God, neither does a casual commitment to Christ without a real concern for obedience. God is glorified not by mere activity or a show of emotion, but by heartfelt obedience to his word. And so where do we fall in our commitment and obedience to the Lord? As we're sitting here, are we just going through the motions? Are we just casually committed? Remember that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right beliefs lead to right practice. And so as this passage anticipates that Jesus is the greater and the perfect priest, the true son, the perfect servant who fulfilled every condition that God has laid out, it is Jesus who offers worship that fully honors God. It is Jesus who offers a worthy sacrifice for sin. It is Jesus who is the ultimate pastor and shepherd who saves people from their sin. And so when we have a right knowledge and understanding of those truths, our only response should be one of worship and obedience. So stand with me as we pray. Lord, <clears throat> we, again, we again thank you for your truth. 
that you reveal to us in your word. We thank you for the faithful leadership that you have provided for this church. And as leaders and as elders, help us to teach rightly, help us to walk faithfully, and help us to lead humbly. And as a church, help us to pray dil diligently for our leaders, to hold them up, and to encourage them. Let us pursue you with a single-minded devotion. Let us lead lives worthy of the gospel. And let us rejoice in your truth and let our joy be found in you alone. So thank you for being our great high priest. And we praise you for saving us from our sins. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. So there are two responses today. If you are a believer, God clearly, over the past couple weeks, calls us to obedience. He calls us to full commitment, full devotion to Him. And so our call today is to be committed. Give Him everything. Give Him your life. And so the second call is for those who haven't put your faith and hope in Jesus. Right? Come to Him. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. God calls us to a life of obedience, to commitment to him, but you can't do that if you haven't first put your hope and your faith in him. And so we would call you to that and we would love to share that with you. And so as we sing, as we worship, as we engage in full-hearted worship, respond as the Lord leads you. This altar is open. I'll be down here. We'll have our elders and our community groups if we need others. But you respond as the Lord leads.